What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? How can we live the truth of this out in our everyday lives? In this series, you will be challenged to not just claim Christianity, but to operate in the power of Christ's name. For more information, visit us online at lifepointaz.com. Good morning. Welcome, welcome to LifePoint Church. I'm so glad you're here. I'm Nathan, and we are in the series, The Acts of the Apostles, and we are on Acts 17. So if you wish to follow along with the Bible, go ahead. There should be one underneath the seat in front of you, hopefully, if you didn't bring one. Or open up your Bible app to Acts 17, verses 16 through 34. And in a moment here, we're going to read that. And uh, I just want to say, I've heard just incredible reports about Pastor Josh preaching last week. I threw it on him last second because we went... Where is his bald head at? I love that guy. Uh, I threw it on him last second because I spent eight hours Wednesday getting myself, four kids, and the wife packed and ready to go on this camping trip that was just going to have to come back Saturday morning. And I said, no, nay, we're staying through to Sunday. And I threw it on Josh. But uh, I was a little disappointed to hear Pastor Josh threw yours truly under the bus in our Final Fantasy, uh, our March Madness bracket. Do you guys remember that? The nerve of some pastors to do that. And I just want to say, I wish I could have gotten him to put it up here, but if you would look right now at our standings, oh, how the pride goeth before the fall. It's biblical, like he should have known, right? Go Gonzaga. All right, Acts 17. 16 through 34. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he's waiting for Timothy and Silas. I don't like to read stuff like that and have you be like, who is he waiting for? So earlier we find out Timothy and Silas, they, they stayed in Berea. He went on uh, across the sea to Athens. He was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who would happen to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him, and some of them asked, what is this blabber (laughs) trying to say? You can add that to your new set of Christian curse words. What is this blabber trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. You see, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. You see, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in temples built by human hands, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times and history and boundaries of their lands. God did this, this is important, 
so that we would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, and as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, remember, whenever you see a therefore in the Bible, what are you supposed to ask? What is it therefore? Therefore, we are God's offspring. We should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For you see, he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, and he has given proof, here's why the therefore was therefore, of this to everyone by raising that man from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. And at that, Paul left the council. Some of them became followers and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we pray for a powerful move of your spirit. Why not, Lord? You tell us to call out for it, and so we will. Ask, and it will be given to us. Seek, and we shall find. So we seek you this morning. We seek the same spirit that was on Paul in the middle of the uh, cultural, influential center of Athens. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that as these words are spoken, they would be your words. In Jesus' name, and God's people said, amen. amen. Okay. So here we are in the book of Acts. We're over halfway through it now. This is the earliest church history. How did we get from then to now? And we see here an important turning point in the way Paul preaches. If you were here for the last couple of weeks, we were in Acts 16, and you got to see Paul speak to an influential businesswoman, Lydia. You got to see him set free a slave girl from a demonic spirit. And then last week, Pastor Josh talked about the Philippian jailer, right? And how important it was for how Paul uh, treated him and in all of these instances, Paul is never preaching at people, is he? He's never preaching at them and telling them, you're wrong, you're evil, turn. There is a difference to how he speaks about the man, Jesus, to each person. And so now we have a completely different setting. In fact, we have a setting that is probably more relatable than any of the previous ones we've talked about because he is in the center of Athens. Athens is the cultural center for the world for philosophical thinking. Now, Rome is the cultural center of the world for power, might, armies, strength. But Athens is where all the philosophers would have been. It's where all the great thinkers would have been. It's where many of the great ideas and inventions were coming out of. Socrates, Plato, Eris, all of that, right? This is Athens. And so this is where Paul is. And as we walk through this, I've got three main points I want us to see. But he's going to address these philosophers at the Areopagus. I'm going to talk in a minute now, in a minute, what the Areopagus is. But this address on Mars Hill, this is where he gives this sermon on Mars Hill, is one of the most analyzed sections of Scripture because of how well Paul crafted and delivered this message of Christ with something I want you to pay attention to as we walk through it. He never actually mentions the name of Christ. Did you catch that? We read nearly 20 verses, I think 16 through 34, and not once did he get to mention the name of Christ yet. And right when he was about to, he gets cut off. 
And yet the message is still the most powerful message because of what he is cutting through. And the first point here is the culture's need for the gospel. You see, he is introducing the most sophisticated, intelligent culture of mankind at the time, their need for the gospel. And I'm going to show you where he does this. Look here. In the very beginning of the passage that I read, it says, Paul reasoned in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him, and some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Now, when it says he went to the marketplace, I realize in our modern day, it makes us think of the mall or the grocery store or... uh, Something similar to a place you would buy, I don't know, some underwear or a watermelon. Now, that's not actually where he went. Where he would have been is what's called the Agora. And the Agora is the place where you got your news. It's where the financial world was happening. It's where business uh, investors met with one another and did their deals. And the Agora is where art was performed. Its political ideas were debated and presented and where the latest philosophical trends were displayed. Essentially, the Agora was modern-day Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram all rolled into one. You see, you thought we were being so cool and trendy by having a common place where we debate politics, business, philosophy, art, and foods we've eaten. They were already doing that, right? Like 60 AD, it was already happening. We're so behind the times on this. Except they actually met face to face. It says he reasoned in this marketplace. He reasoned with them. The word here is a Greek word called dialogome. And the word means a Socratic reasoning or a Socratic debate. This isn't just a debate. And the problem is, coming off an election year, when you think of debates, I hope, I sincerely hope, we don't think of the debates we just had to see last year. Those are miserable and terrible to have to watch and are are in no way a debate. It is two sides or three or eight defending themselves and speaking on talking points without ever addressing often questions that are asked or the issues brought up by their opponent. Now, the debate that Paul engages in with these people in the marketplace is a debate called Socratic debate, dialogomai, and it is where you ask questions of your opponent to learn their premise. Isn't that refreshing? How nice would that be if you sat down with someone to have a friendly conversation, maybe a little bit of of a debate, you have different views on something, and the person you sat down with spent the first 20 minutes just learning about you and where you're coming from. What? Don't speak such blasphemy from the stage. Who does that? You ever seen someone on Facebook reply to something sort of controversial and be like, I'd love to just know where you're coming from. I'd love to hear about your heart. I'd love to just know about you and what brought you to that decision. No! They're angry, and they fire off, and they're like, you're a stupido, right? I had to say it in Spanish so that way I didn't offend any English people in the room. But the point is, we just jump right into the reason they're wrong and we're right. It's ridiculous. And so the kind of debate Paul enters in is this Socratic reasoning, and he begins to learn about the cultural religion of the day. These are the smart people. These are the elite of the elite. And he says, where are you at on some of life's most important pressing questions? How do you deal with pain and suffering? How do you deal with love and lust? How do you deal with loss? Right? This is what he wants to know. 
And so Paul's sitting here and he listens carefully and he's ultimately going to engage them because this word, this debate, isn't a debate. It's, he's not preaching. He's not standing on a soapbox preaching Jesus. He's engaging them. Have you ever heard that said in the Christian realm, engage your culture, right? This is what Paul's doing. See, engaging the culture is not just passing out a tract. It's not just going and telling somebody who you believe is living in sin that they're living in sin. But it's going and learning about them, loving them, investing in their life, becoming a part of their life, engaging them, and earning the right to share Christ with them. This is what Paul's doing. Before he's ever brought to the Areopagus, he is in the Agora, the marketplace, earning the right to share Christ with them. You get that? That's beautiful. Now, you won't get that if you just read the scriptures and you're just passing through it because you're trying to get your uh, full Bible in 365 days. But if you take a look at it, you'll see that Paul is intentionally taking time to know who they are because there's an important point here that I want you to see is that this group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers begin to engage him and he engages them in return and they call him a babbler. A babbler, in the sense that it is used here, is a seed-picking bird. I told you, it's a great new curse word, right? It's a seed-picking bird. It was an idea for a person who didn't have any original ideas. So what they did is they stole ideas from multiple other religions and cultures and then created their own. So that's what they said Paul did. They're like, Jesus, the gospel, death? What? You're, you're a babbler, obviously. And so Paul begins to engage them, and he engages them in an area of culture's weakness and need. You catch up? You see, he understands that these men, when it comes to reason and logic, have an incredible strength based off of their elite status in the culture of Athens being considered an elite place, the best of the best. And so he's not going to go after that. He's not going to attack that and try to bring that down. There's no need. He's going to go and he's going to see that the beliefs you currently hold on to have a weakness about them. And he's going to go after those things. He's going to say, why does your belief, why does your religious convictions have such a gaping, blatant weakness when it comes to, well, if you're a Stoic, it comes to this. The Stoics are basically moralists. They, the word that we get, stoic, very, you know, staunch, no emotion. We just push through things, pick yourself up by your bootstraps. That's the stoics. They were moralists. You're supposed to have, they believed in moral absolutes and that the meaning of life was to be good, virtuous, noble, and courageous. So there was no crying aloud if you were a stoic. There was no crying in stoics, right? Catch that reference? You're welcome. If the stoic would have gone and seen the shack, they would have made it all the way through without crying. And let me tell you, I tried. And I got all the way up until the last 20 minutes or so, and then it got me. And I was so angry, and I hid my face and made Christy leave early with me so no one would see the tears that were flowing. I've tried to be a stoic, and I'll tell you what, it's terrible. Right? That's this, I'm being semi-serious here. You don't break down, you don't weep, you don't cry. You're a strong person, and historians say that about the stoics, the philosophical stoics, that it didn't work for most people. Because when suffering and pain came along, there was no answer. You see, it was their cultural weakness. They ignored suffering or pain and tried to pretend it didn't exist. Do you think that we live in a culture that does that? Yeah. 
very much so. We are a culture that says you are an island, you are strong, you're an individual, you just stand up, you push through it, and you'll come out on top, pumpkin. That is our nation's motto. Now watch this, though. The other philosophers he engaged were called Epicureans. Now Epicureans believed that when you died, that was it. They believed that there were some gods, but that the gods were too busy, too big to have anything to do with us, and that we shouldn't live our life based off of virtue and courageousness. We should live our life based off of pleasure and happiness. Some of you are like, Epicureans, woohoo! You can have the Stoics. I want the Epicureans. They believed the importance was to be happy, and therefore, from the Epicurean side of things, they talked, and if there's young ears in this room, I'm sorry, but they talked a lot about sexual freedom. And again, many of you are like, still, is there room for the Epicurean? But the point is that they had this idea and belief that because you live once, you live for pleasure and happiness. And there should be nothing else that directs your decisions, your beliefs, how you pray to the gods, how you conduct business, how you have relationships, than your own personal pleasure and happiness. And so what's really cool about this and fascinating, and historians have debated and argued this over the years, is how in the world did the Christian view of sex come in and overtake this this seemingly free-thinking culture? The restrictive Christian view within 250 years became the dominant uh, view of all of the most civilized world. Not just on who God was and Jesus and religion, but on all of the things about abstinence and a man and a woman becoming married and sticking with one another and not leaving one another when things got tough. This became the dominant cultural view within 250 years. How in the world is that possible? Because here's the thing. Paul found the Epicureans' cultural weakness. And it's the same thing we see today. You know, it's funny when people say Christianity's view on sex is outdated because they're really showing an ignorance of history. You see, Christianity's view about sex was born in a culture that we have today. It was born in the Roman, Greco-Roman world in a culture that said, free everything, whatever you want, whatever makes you happy, go for it. And you see, it wasn't an outdated view that got shot down. It was actually the outdated, restrictive view that people began to find long-term joy and happiness in. They began to realize the truth inside of the relationships that Scripture talks about. They begin to see the benefits of sticking with someone past the arguments and the pain and choosing to love them for a lifetime. And within 250 years, it was the norm for the entire civilized world. And we sit here today and say, as a culture, that outdated view on sex? How do you believe that outdated view? Fascinating, right? Fascinating. The weight, point two, is this. So Paul goes and looks. He finds the weakness of the culture, the very elite culture, and he sees where their need is. And two, he presents the weight of God. Remember, what's the word glory mean? I just gave it to you. It's the weight. When we talk about the glory of God, we talk about the weight, the physical heaviness of God upon you. Ever feel like like God is just like a, sometimes he takes the weight off, but you ever feel just like the weight of God upon you? The glory of God. So this is the glory of God upon culture or the weight of God upon culture. When you look at Paul's actual speech at the Areopagus, which, by the way, is the council of all of the leading philosophers there in Athens. 
So there were many philosophers, but these guys are the cream of the crop. They're tenured, right? These are the philosophers from ASU, not U of A. These are the good guys. Really know what they're doing. There it is. These are the public intellectuals, the influence brokers. What they said was transferred down from the Areopagus to all of the suburbs, all of the smaller cities, Thessalonica, Berea, um, the Philippines, uh, well, not the Philippines, uh, I just totally, Philippi, yes, thank you. Transferred down to all of that came from their Areopagus. Make sense? And so this is where Paul's invited to speak, and after he spent time earning the right to share to them, he's now invited up to the Areopagus, to the elite of the elites, and this is what he says. He says, uh, people of Athens, I see in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I found an altar with the inscription, to an unknown God. To an unknown God. You are a very religious people. In fact, you are so religious that just to cover your bases, to make sure that you aren't missing any of the gods and making them angry, because remember, they had idols to Zeus and Hermes and Poseidon, right? And then he sees an idol, and it's carved out, and on it says, to an unknown God. So just to cover our bases, we don't want to offend any gods, and if you're out there and we don't have a statue of you, this is your statue. That's what this is. And Paul says, clearly, you're very religious people. You're so religious that you want to make sure that you praise and appease every God out there, even the ones you don't know exist. We would call it today doing your due diligence. Essentially, he's saying, I hope there's no God up there we've forgotten. And Paul says, you know, there is a God. There is a God that I don't see an idol to out here. But the thing is, he doesn't require an idol. The fact is, he doesn't require that you appease him with good behavior or worship before a statue that appears to look like him. No, in fact, he came, and this is uh, in verse 24, and he made the world and everything in it. In fact, he is Lord over heaven and earth. He is God of all the gods, king of the kings. There is nothing greater or higher than him. Look at verse 25. He not only created everything, but he is dependent on nothing. The rain is not dependent on how hard you pray. He is not dependent on whether he will act or not act based off of how you act. He is dependent on nothing. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. He is self-sufficient. He is beginningless and he is endless. He is Yahweh. He is the great I am, the beginning and the end. Thirdly, he is sovereign over everything. He has not only made all the nations, but he has marked out their approved time in history. Now, how do you like that? If you're Athens and you're the height of power and the intellectual center of the world, you know that your time in history has been appointed by this God. And we all know about cultures that they all have a beginning and an end. You see, not only does he look at all the needs of humans, but he has appointed cultures, times in history, and the boundaries of their lands, which means everything that happens in history is under his control. This is an incredible way to speak to a group of people who believe they have all the answers. To say, you know, there's a God who doesn't need your approval. 
who doesn't need your inscription on a piece of stone. He is self-sufficient. He is without beginning and without end. And here's what's really, really, really cool. Verse 27, God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him, though he's never far from any of you. God did all of this. The earth, the trees, the water, the animals, so that you might reach out and seek him. What he's saying there is that God loves you with an unending love. He built all of this for you, that you might seek him and know him. So what Paul's saying is you actually do know there is a God. You actually sense in your heart, that's why you have that statue that, that the, the Greek gods are, are not all there is, that there must be something more than these petty, wimpy gods. Look at verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. What he's trying to say is in your own writing, some of your own thinkers have depicted a God like this. A God is so great that he holds up every second of time. In him we live and move and have our being. They just didn't know who he is. Well, guess what? I'm here to introduce him to you. This is him. He's depicting an enormous God, a God who's worthy of worship, a God beyond all the others. And what he's showing them is that all of the gods you have are just projections of yourself. You see that? The gods were petty. The gods got frustrated. The gods got angry. The gods fought with one another. The gods required that you appease them in order to listen to you. It's just a projection of human nature, isn't it? Isn't that what we do? We fight with each other. We're petty. We're wimpy. We get angry. We pout. Zeus had to go sit in timeout sometimes, right? Like, that's your God? Your God has to sit in timeout and you made him on that neat little piece of stone? That's adorable. That's not a God, though. That's art class. And Paul's like, I come to present before you a God, the God, who sustains and holds every moment of time in his hand. First of all, he presents God to their mind. He says, you know what, I'm going to prove this God to you, but I'm going to prove that you actually already know him. I'm not trying to introduce a new God to you. I'm going to show you that you already know this God. And we know that from what he's going to write a little, a few years later in the book of Romans, chapter 1, when he says the laws of God are written on the hearts of man. The truth is, he's there. You've sensed him. You've known him. You just haven't known who he was. By bringing up this kind of God, he says... You already believe him. I'm just showing you who he is through this rational argument. And what's so terrific is it's not just an argument for the mind. It's an argument for the heart as well. Look at verse 26 when he said, He made all human beings and marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their land. You know what he's saying? The phrase marked out means he foreordained. What it's saying is where you live, where you're born, every place you've gone, every experience you've had has been because of a sovereign God who planned it out for you. He does not operate inside of the time of the earth. He is not operating in the past, present, or future. He is outside of all of it. And he has ordained it for you. Now that's hard for them to have accepted. It's really hard for us to have accepted as well. 
isn't it? Whether you're a Christian or not, it's hard to accept that God has ordained life for me and that somehow there is a both and concept with free will and the ordination of God. And here is what is really beautiful and what I'm gonna close on here is this idea that I don't have to understand it all. And this is gonna fly in the face of some real strong reformed theology and thought and that's okay because fortunately God's bigger than Calvin and Luther and reformed theology. I hope so. But you don't have to know it all and here's the deal, you won't know it all this side of glory. I don't care how much you study, how much wisdom and insight God gives you, that if you can ever come to a point where you fully understand the essence and the being of God Almighty, then help us because you're the same person who burns the toast and the eggs, forgets to pick the kids up from school and doesn't brush your teeth every day. But you somehow have wrapped your brains around the essence of God Almighty. Congratulations. When I put it like that, it's a little silly, isn't it? When you think about philosophers who are like, oh yeah, we figured it all that, all that out. You read books this thick of people who have figured God out. I know all the questions. Virgin birth, piece of cake. I see how he did it. Holy Spirit came in, planted it, real simple. Archangel Michael, he was there. It's no big deal. No, it isn't. Are, are you kidding? There needs to be a humility in our understanding. And so look at this. This is what... This is what's so cool, and, and I'll close with this story. Um, 1976, there was this missionary convention where thousands of young college, college kids came to listen to missionaries, and they were going to go and enter the mission field soon. And uh, this woman, Elizabeth Elliott, spoke. So again, 1976. She was speaking to these young people, and she told about five young missionaries, of whom one was her husband. And she said this. One night, back in the 1950s, these young five missionaries got up and sang a song. They sang, we rest on thee, our shield and our defender. The next morning, they went out to contact an Amazonian rainforest tribe, and they were all speared to death. One of them, again, was my husband, she said. The night before they prayed, O oh, Father, we rest on thee, our shield and defender, and the very next day, they were speared to death. The crowd got quiet. Then she said, they were speared to death in the course of their obedience. Now, what does that do to your faith? What does that do to your faith in a God? Does it demolish it? Does your faith disintegrate? Because of a faith that is not resting in God himself, then it will fall apart when tragedy strikes. If you've been believing in something less than ultimate, you've been believing in your own program of how things are supposed to work and it is just a projection of yourself. Do we remember a certain belief that used to have that? Stoics, Epicureans, Greco-Roman culture. She goes on, she says, God is God and if he is God, he is worthy of my worship and my service and I will find rest nowhere but in his will. That rest is, infinite, that rest is infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond my largest notions of what he's up to. And then she quotes Evelyn Underhill when she said, if God were small enough to be understood, he would not be big enough to be worshiped. Now here's, what, here's the deal. I'm not telling you that we remain ignorant in who God is. I'm not telling you you can never fully know God, so why even try, just give up and stay on the milk and uh, live your best life now and a bunch, right? Like, let's move on past that. 
But I am telling you that in your pursuit of God, this side of glory, don't expect to ever get to a place where you fully have it all. Because what happens there, and I've seen it unfortunately too many times, a pride enters into the heart of man and woman, and it says, I have it figured out, and you become cold and hard, and nobody cares to listen to you. And the whole purpose of this life on earth is that we would be able to share the love of God with people. No one cares that you have it all figured out. I want to invite the ushers forward. We take communion every Sunday here as a reminder of who God is and what he did and the sacrifice that we're speaking of here. And as they're coming forward, I want to close here and read verse 31. He says, he has given proof of this to everyone. He has given proof that he is the God of gods by raising him from the dead. Remember I said the name of Jesus is never mentioned in the speech on Mars Hill? By raising him from the dead. Before he can even say the name of Jesus, before he can say, nobody asks, who is him? It says that the people stood up, some of them sneered at him, and others wanted to hear him on the subject again, and at that, Paul left the council. Soon as the resurrection of Christ was mentioned, they didn't want to hear it anymore. And here's the deal, here at LifePoint, we practice an open communion, which means if you have a relationship with Christ, no matter your denomination, feel free to take the cup and the bread's on top. If you don't have that relationship yet, if he isn't that Lord and Savior of your life, just let him pass. But don't leave here without talking to somebody about what that means. Myself, a pastor, an elder, people in the prayer room, it's an important, it's an important concept. But as soon as the resurrection is mentioned, people start mocking him. They start sneering at him. You're ridiculous. I could listen to it up until that. That's just ridiculous. And you see, it's no different today. The idea of resurrection is an offense to human rationalism and dignity. It says, no way does something that decays and dies rises again underneath its own power. I'm sorry. You had me until the resurrection. But here's the problem with that. That if I take God all the way up until the resurrection, then I have nothing. Because lots of good people have died for other people. But none of them have risen again. What we celebrate here this morning with the act of communion is we celebrate that life, that death, and the resurrection. We celebrate that as Christ sat with his disciples in the upper room and he broke bread with them, that he knew what was coming. He knew the immensity of the decision of taking upon the sin of the world on his back. And he knew that it required his body to do it. And so he told them, this is my body which is broken for you taste and see that the Lord is good you see it required more than just a body that would be beaten 
that would be mocked, sneered, spit upon, made fun of. No, the law requires the blood of another to atone for sin. So Jesus held up the cup and he said, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of many. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, Heavenly Father, it is the mighty name of Jesus we worship in here this morning. It may have not have been said that day in the Areopagus, but we worship it here in the name of Jesus. By no other name do we bow. By no other name on earth or in heaven do we bow. Thank you, Jesus, for the sacrifice of the cross, for conquering and defeating sin and death, and for rising again. Lord, I may never fully understand you, and I hope I never fully do, but I will worship you, love you, and serve you. And it's in your mighty name. And God's people said, amen.